Uh, I conducted a, a rather informal survey uh, about a week ago. I, I went and I asked a number of people this question. I said, when you first came to faith in Christ, when early, when early on when you had trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for yourself, that what he did, he did for you, and you were young in your faith, um, what did you, what were some of the first things you heard about, about Jesus's second coming? Uh, what are some of the things you heard about, about, you know, in another way you could say it, end times, or in, you know, in a secular, the end of the world? What were the things that came to you? Uh, and what kind of an effect did they have on you? So when you heard these things, how did it affect you? Uh, totally unscientific, but I would say uh, seven out of ten people had some measure of concern. It's like when they heard about those things, when they were a young Christian, it, it created anxiety, can I say it that way, and, and, and maybe a fearfulness about the future. Uh, I don't know how you would answer the question. You know, not everyone answered that way. Nate Souza, if you know Nate, is our music director at, at Brentwood. Nate said, uh, he said, man, I, I was stoked when I heard these things. I said, I said, really? I said, tell me why. He said, because he said, from everything I'm hearing, I, I thought, that does not sound boring. And indeed, those things do not sound boring at all. I don't think it would surprise you that those of you who know me, and, and, and most many in the room know me pretty well, that when I heard about these things, I, I first heard, began to hear about the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world and how the world's going to end uh, when I was not a believer. I was not a Christian. I was uh, in my uh, teen years in the 70s. And I kid you not, it terrified me. Now, let me explain why it terrified me. Um, you know, in the 70s, uh, I, there was a book written, and some of you are going to know this. It's still one of, it still remains in the top 100 best-selling books of all time by a guy named Hal Lindsey. What was the name of the book, some of you who know? The Late Great Planet Earth. This is the original cover, and some of you have this in your bookshelf still, I know. And it's, you know, it's got the red and the fireball because it was really around... It really talked about, you know, the, the, the end of the world going up in smoke. But if you look on the bottom, it says a penetrating look at the incredible prophecies involving this generation. It's happening now. You know, this generation is experiencing these prophecies. And, you know, that would spur some, some, some anxiety if you didn't really understand those things. Now, it was about two, maybe three years later uh, that they, they made a movie out of the book. It's almost a documentary-type movie. Orson Welles narrated it. Here's the, here's the uh, picture of the, uh, the movie poster. Now, I don't know. Does that scare you? I mean, if you look at that and go, this is, and, and look, watch this. This is what the Bible says is going to happen to this world. And it terrified me. I mean, absolutely uh, scared the wits out of me as I began to go through this. At the same time, I read a little pamphlet. I hate to belabor this, but this, this truly happened. During these same years or whatever, I read a little pamphlet. You know, you get these little pamphlets and it was, a, it was called you know, How It Will All End or The End of the World. It was black and white. And you open it up and it's drawings and, you know, little, little captions, almost like cartoonish. And it would say, you know, it said words like Gog and Magog and Armageddon and war and battles. And it said that, that, that at the end of the, end of the uh, age, end of the world, there's going to be this great battle. 
And then it quoted Ezekiel. Now, again, you got to understand, I didn't know the Bible. I, I had no idea what, who Ezekiel was, but I knew it was in the Bible. It quoted Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel says, at the end of the world, there'll be a great battle, and they will burn the implements of war for seven years. And then you flip the page, and there's this call-out box. You know, a call-out box means this is really important. And it said in that call-out box that Russia had developed a new composite material that was lighter than steel, but stronger than steel. And they were using it now to make all of their weapons. And this material would burn like coal. And I went, oh, you know, it's... It's happening, you know, something that along, just in my heart. Um, well, we've come to our study in Mark's gospel to the end of the world, you know, a sense. We've come to what's called the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel. It's the longest discourse that Jesus does, and he's going to talk about his second coming and things that surround it. I want you to know, as one of, one of your teaching pastors, I am not convinced in my heart how it all ends. And it may surprise some of you that I don't, I don't take a hard line on, I'll say this, he's coming back. I don't take a hard line on the timeline and the events of, of the end times eschatology. It's very difficult for me. And, and I, 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 I don't know how anyone could be truly dogmatic on these things, quite frankly, and I'm not going to be today. And yet, if Jesus spends a, the longest discourse that he does on these things, then clearly, while there's a lot we don't know, that's a fact. You, no one can argue with the, the, that there's just a lot we can't know. There are a few things we can know. And quite frankly, we can know these things for sure. And when we know these things, gang, it does not produce fear, anxiety, worry, when we begin to experience events that, that, you know, that tell us it's coming soon or the events themselves, it actually produces in the person who's trusted Christ three things. A deep and ever-deepening conviction that God's in control. That's what it'll produce. God's in control. Secondly, that I am secure in Christ. And third, that the Holy Spirit is at work in me. Three things. There's the message. I'm secure in Christ. Uh, uh, God is in control. I'm secure in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is at work in me. That, that's the conviction that deepens as we hear about, experience, and learn about end times. Now, the last thing before we dive into the text, I'm actually going to tell you uh, the future. I'm going to prophesy a little bit in a sense. Don't, don't stone me if it doesn't happen. But... Um, in the next, you know, 25 minutes, uh, you're going you're gonna to think that the predator scored a goal because some horns are going to go off in the room. And I'm telling you this so that you don't spill your coffee. You know, you don't jump out of your seat. It's going to happen. And uh, it's going to happen twice. And, and, then, and what I want you to understand when it happens the second time, you know, you know we're getting close to the end of the message. But also, when it happens, uh, I'm going to encourage you to, I've told you it's going to happen. So when it happens, it need not uh, totally uh, distract you because what's most important is not that the horn blew, but that we understand this text today. So it's almost around, oh, i got to pay attention to what's happening here. Ready? Okay. Now everybody's on the edge of their seats. This is fabulous. It's a wonderful way to motivate students. 
Um, okay, 13, 1 to 23 today, and then 24 to the end is next week. Okay, chapter 13, if you have your Bibles open to Mark, it's going to be three sections. The first is cha- verses 1 and 2, I'm going to call buildings. The second is birth pangs, that's 3 to 13. And the third thing is abomination. Okay, so the, the text is going to go through three parts. Buildings, birth pangs, and then abomination. There's our categories. Let's start with buildings. Look at verses 1 and 2. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now that statement absolutely got their attention. Uh, I think I've shown this before, maybe, maybe not, but I've got a picture of the Temple Mount that I want you to see. This is a very you know, accurate rendering. It's out of the ESV Study Bible. But the Temple Mount itself, you know, it kind of looks brownish in this. You got to understand, it was white. It is white, even today, what's, you know, the stones that are on the ground. Uh, there was gold plating upon this. Y'all, this was 35 acres the, the, the Temple Mount, it took up a, a sixth of the whole of Jerusalem, okay? This was massive. And, and when they looked upon this, you got to understand, a Jew would look at this and go, that is the most important piece of dirt in the world. It's where we meet God. It's the center of our lives. That's the place of security. It's the sanctuary. It's all of those things. They can't even fathom this is going to be, you know, leveled down. By the way, physically... There are stones in this temple, you all, that are the size of railroad boxcars, literally. Railroad boxcar, solid stone. 100,000 tons. A, a, a pyramid stone is two and a half tons. One of these stones, 100, you, you can't even, we can't even hardly fathom the physicality of this. So when he says not one stone is going to be left upon another one, you got to know they, 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 they go, this, there's just no way. And sure enough, we know they got the word because when they went from the Temple Mount and they went through the Kidron Valley and they came up and then they were on the Mount of Olives. Temple Mount, Mount of Olives. And now it's about 200 feet, 150 feet above the Temple Mount. They're looking down at the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. And the, four, the first four disciples he called come to him and begin to ask him questions as they're looking down on the Temple Mount. So we go from buildings to birth pangs. This is the biggest section here in verses 3 to 13. Follow along in your Bibles. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking down on the Temple Mount now, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign all these things are going to be fulfilled? Notice they didn't, they didn't question that what he said was going to happen. Just a note to self, they, they took him at his word. They went, when? How will we know it's happening? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. 
But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved." Now, Jesus calls these birth pangs, and so let's, let's take the, the, the analogy, the metaphor for what it is. Think about birth, that the, the, you know, the Braxton Hicks or whatever those kick in, then labor pangs. But the labor pangs are not the birth, right? So we know that Jesus is saying days are coming, things are going to happen that are going to be painful, that are going to be difficult. But don't miss the end of labor pangs, would we call this uh, uh, not, worth, not worth it? No, we would say the end of it is amazing and worth it. And so keep that even in mind as we consider the end times, okay? These birth pangs are going to begin. He gives five categories, and they're so self-evident, I'm not even going to define them. You, 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 you would just go, yes, 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 yes. There's five things that are going to be happening prior to the return of Jesus. There will be spiritual deception. There will be global conflict. There will be natural disasters. There will be Christian persecution, and there will be family betrayal. And again, that, okay, we all know what those things are. Here's what's interesting. The four guys who asked him the question, they experienced all five things in their lifetime. You say, well, how, how do you know that? Well, read the book of Acts. When we read the book of Acts, Jesus has now ascended to heaven, and when he ascended, the angel said, now he's going to come back the same way you saw him ascend, and then the early church begins, and we have early church history up until the point where we are today. The book of Acts is the early church, and when you read the stories of the early church, can I tell you, literally, you know what was going on in the early church? There was, as I just uh, read to you, there was global conflict, spiritual deception, there were natural disasters, Christian persecution, and family betrayal. Read the book. It's fascinating how to the letter these things happen. Peter and, and, and Paul, others put before kings, Festus, Agrippa, and they, were, they, they stood there and they had to speak. You know that? That literally happened, just what he said. When they, when they arrest you, when they arrest you, not it may, they may arrest you. When they arrest you, they're going to flog you. They were beaten and flogged, and they spoke, and they gave testimony. And do you know, in, in, in the book of Acts, we, we continue to read through there, and there are false Christs that show up. Uh, all of these things, uh, and earthquakes and famines, there was a famine, and the church gave toward the famine relief. All these things happened. And so it, it tells me, at least, when we read the New Testament letters, why it seems they lived with this sense that he could come this afternoon. He could come, why? Because they experienced what he said was going to happen before his coming. Now, <coughs> I want you to put your Bibles down to the side. I need you to use both hands for this 
exercise. It may feel a little odd or silly, but I assure you it will really help us when we consider how to interpret prophecy. So when you think about how do we interpret prophecy and, and, and what it, when we read about it, what does the Bible say? And we don't want to misinterpret it. Here's how we can do this. First thing I want you to do is I want you to hold one finger up close to your nose. Not right on it, but you got one finger close to you, just like I've got right here. And I want you to close one eye and look at your one finger. That's all, that's all we're doing. It's closer to my face, okay? I want you to take your left hand and I want you to extend it away from you. It doesn't matter how far, but I want you to put it behind the one finger you see. Keep one eye closed and move your left hand finger behind this finger so that when you look down here, like right now I'm looking and I want you guys to see if you ask me how many fingers do I have up, I would say one, okay? Is everybody with me? Like I'm looking and I only see one finger. Is everybody good? Okay, now... Uh, I want you to look around at people at, around you. Look how kind of stupid people look right now. In the whole room, we're doing this. But I want you to do this. Keep it up. Now I want you to open both eyes, and I want you to turn your hands so that they're like this. Turn your hands like this. Now you see how um, some of you were like this, and you're like, but I want you to hold this for just a minute because what I want you to understand is when the, when, the, when, the, when the Bible makes prophecies, and the prophets made a prophecy, they would, they would see that prophecy, and they would see one prophecy. But they didn't have the advantage we do of seeing history and going, wait, that one prophecy is actually two. Are you guys with me? Now put your hands down. Let me give you a perfect example of this. And it's the most well-known one that we have. For thousands of years, the Jews knew that God was going to send Messiah. Okay? So for thousands of years, they're standing here going, Messiah's coming. One day, Messiah's coming. And Messiah did come. Jesus Christ came to this planet, the anointed one of God, lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserved, rose from the grave, offers forgiveness and righteousness, his righteousness to us. He came. But then what did Jesus do? Book of Acts. He ascended. He went back to the Father and Jesus said, but I'm coming again. So we know he came and he's coming again. And so, the, so the, the, the Old Testament prophets, the Jews would go, you know, there's only, one, there's only one coming of Messiah. But now we know, oh my goodness, there have been two all along. Is everybody with me on this? So when you, when, they, when you read prophecy, you go, there are often uh, foreshadowing near fulfillments that happen that are merely foreshadowing the final and full fulfillment of the prophecy. So when you're living in timeline like this and there's a prophecy and things happen, you've got to go, okay, it did happen, but is there a fuller fulfillment coming? And this is going to make more sense as we move to the back end of this passage. When we get to the, from birth pangs to what's called the abomination which is where we'll go now. So I'll unpack this. This is going to make sense. Look in your Bibles at 14 to 23. We go from buildings to birth pangs to abomination. <coughs> Verse 14. But, here's the contrast. But, you know, all this is not the end. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, you notice that is in our Bibles, but Jesus didn't put parentheses and say that. That's Mark, you know, probably inserting, pay attention to what Jesus said here. Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. 
But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, the chosen ones, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, notice he's ending this section the way he began it. Verse 5, he said, don't let anyone mislead you, many will come in my name. Notice 21 to 23, he repeats it. It's like the book ends. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, he is here. Do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. <coughs> now, abomination of desolation. How many of you have just been tripped up by that? You just, I, I have. I read it and go, what in the world? Is it? Um, it sounds like a, 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 the next Transformer movie or something like that. That's how we hear it. It's so weird, right? Well, we always want to ask, how did the original audience hear it? Well, when they heard that, do you guys know? They knew what he meant. They didn't go, what in the world is he talking about? Well, they knew what he meant because their minds would go immediately to the book of Daniel. And so in the book of Daniel, literally the abomination of desolation is mentioned three times. Chapter 9, 20, verse 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. Daniel is prophesying. He's literally talking about the Messiah. And he says, when Messiah comes, uh, there, there, there will be the abomination of desolation, now, what's interesting is when Daniel's prophesying 600 years before the first coming of Christ, okay, before the first coming, Daniel's prophesying and he's actually, he's at, his prophecy actually touches on the first coming and the second coming. That's why I had you do this to go, oh, wait, 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 he, he prophesied that and if it already happened, then what about, and, and, and I'll talk about this in a moment that it already happened. So Daniel prophesied 600 years before the coming of Christ about this abomination of desolation. Um, it, uh, think about the word abomination. It means loathsome. It, it, it means horrific, you know, just, just uh, almost hyperbole, detestable. It's an abomination. And it's abomination of desolation. When you hear that word desolation, you think of, you know, all that, all that was there is now gone. It's desolate. There are no more people there. It's been emptied out. The abomination of desolation. Now, the original readers as well, when they heard Jesus say this, what they heard Jesus say because of the tense of the, 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 the masculine tense, when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, masculine tense, standing where he should not be, so, so now they're going, wait, it's not just an event, but it's a person who does something that creates desolation, okay? Are you with me so far? That's how, they're, that's how they hear this, and they'd heard Daniel talk about it. Well, watch this historically. Daniel talks about it 600 years before the birth of Christ. In 168 BC, 168 years before Jesus came the first time, Antiochus Epiphanes overtook Jerusalem and desecrated the temple in this way. This is before Jesus ever came. Overtook Jerusalem, desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar of God and then erecting an altar to Zeus on the altar of God. If you were living in 168 BC and you were in Jerusalem and you saw that happen, what would you say to yourself? What just happened? 
Literally, I'm asking you, seriously, say out loud. The abomination of desolation just happened because that's absolutely sacrilegious. It's loathsome to a Jew, a pig, sac- and he did it purpose like that. So you'd go, wait, that prophecy's been fulfilled because Antiochus Epiphanes did it. Well, you would be right. And you know what happened after he did it? He outlawed Judaism and the temple became desolate. There are no longer sacrifices, no Jews there. Now, hold on. That's 168 BC because now we're reading this story that's happening in 33 AD, okay, about 33 AD, uh, about 30, more, 30 years after this, these events are happening, okay, Titus comes into Jerusalem, lays siege to Jerusalem, and over the course of that siege, can I tell you what happened? It got so bad in Jerusalem, children would betray their parents to death to live. Little factions built up within Jerusalem because they were under siege. They had no food. Mothers would cook their children to eat. It is beyond description. Now, some Jews, they actually uh, escaped this, this terrible thing that's happening within Jerusalem. And do you know how they escaped? When it started... They fled to the mountains. Those that were maybe working on the flat rooftop where they lived, they didn't even go downstairs to get the the family pictures. They ran because they knew if they didn't get out now, they would die. And do you know when this began, there were some who were working in fields and they didn't turn back to get their coat. They're working in the field. They see it happening and their coats over there. They ignored their coat and they ran to the mountains. This is, Josephus tells us this. They ran to Pella. So you go, oh, wait, well, so, so, so what happened here when he says go? And he says, pray it not happen in winter because how difficult is it to run and survive in winter? And also the rivers are higher in winter. So if the rivers would have been high, it would have been very difficult to cross to get to the mountains to escape, you see. So historically, yes, it happened. So you go, wait, Daniel prophesied the abomination of desolation and, and, and it happened in 168. And then in 70 AD, destruction of Jerusalem. And by the way, that Temple Mount I just showed you in 70 AD, it was waylaid. Gold had melted because they burned the temple. And you know what the Roman soldiers did? They cracked apart those rocks to get to that gold until no stone was left upon another. And they shut down the temple worship such that it became, the temple was now desolate. So if you lived in 70 AD and you saw that happen, what would you say to yourself? Abomination of desolation just happened. So, so you got to understand Dan, Daniel's prophecy, <clears throat> 168, yes, yes. And then 70 AD, yes. So there's a sense to which, is it one prophecy or two? It's actually three. Why would I say that? Because when we read the nature of this tribulation and language like such has never been since creation and never will be, even as bad as the siege of Jerusalem was, we recognize there's something worse coming. I also say this because if you read 2 Thessalonians, if you read Revelation, we recognize there's such a thing as the day of the Lord that's still future. <clears throat> Am I making sense? So that prophecy you see is really like this, and there's some early fulfillments, but there's a greater fullness to this that is coming. Now, we live between his first coming and this promise of his second. 
And we're reading now about these events surrounding the second coming. But rather than generating anxiety, fear, and concern, I told you earlier, I believe when we grasp these things and we live between these two, it generates within the believer, the one who's trusted Christ, a deeper and deeper abiding sense that God's in control. Because this stuff is not in control. This is crazy. I'm secure in Christ and the Holy Spirit as it were is at work in me. So, let me unpack those three things. If we recognize we live between his first and his second coming, men and women, I don't know how much more confident we can be that God is in control than to recognize for thousands of years the, the, the prophecies of, of Christ were that he would come and he came, you all. The, the coming of Jesus the first time is a historic, verifiable fact And so we know that we've got a historic fact on this end, and the historic fact is a result of God making a promise thousands of years earlier, and he delivered just like he said he would. And therefore, when we look to the future and we go, well, Jesus said he's coming back again, how secure is this promise? It's as secure as this one. Are you tracking with me? We live between these two secure promises that what? God is in control. I just want you to feel that in your gut. He's in control. Even when difficulties and hardships and all these things happen, he's in control. But I also said there's a sense to which we can stand here and amidst our, I'll say this, amidst our own tribulations and hardships and amidst the ones, if we're alive, when those, the, great, the day of the Lord and those great tribulations come, we can know, you know what? I am secure in Christ. Even amidst these hardships. Now, where do I get that? Let me take you back to the text itself. Some of you, look back at verse four, verse 13. Some of you maybe read that and, and you didn't hear anything else I said because you, this, you're still hung up on it. It says, you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And some of us, it's, so, you know, this is really normal. I mean, I, I tend to do this. We, we read that and we go, oh, gosh. What if I don't endure? What if it gets so bad, I just throw it in. I can't hold on. I can't do it. It gets so difficult, I just, I, I, I can't, I, I don't, I'm not saved because I don't endure. Don't raise your hand, but some of us go there, you know, because of that passage. That is not what that passage is saying. So we've got to take that verse and put it within the context of the clear verses of Scripture that describe what salvation is, justification before God is, what it entails. It's got to align with the whole context of the Bible. And when we do that, men and women, we come to passages like Acts 11, when, when uh, you know, the, the gospel is preached and the message is this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you hold on when it gets hard and don't let go, it's not, no, it's believe and you will be saved. It is Paul when he's speaking of justification. And y'all, this is in Romans, theological, right? Doctrinal passage. This is like the, the, the heavy stuff. And Paul is saying, 
If you are in Christ Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you understand you have been justified before God. And he speaks of that, that, that being a relationship with God now where you've been forgiven of all your sins, clothed with Christ's righteousness. You're in Christ Jesus. And he says, he begins to kind of go, well, I want you to understand you can't lose that. Uh, you, that, that'll, never, that'll never be reversed. And he goes this. He goes, he starts listing things that could separate us from the love of Christ. And you know what, he, you know what the first thing he says is? You know, he says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, can tribulation? <laughs> can, you know, every, anything under the sun, beyond the sun, spiritual, seen, unseen? No. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And then, how about Jesus himself in John 10? Jesus is speaking of the sheep, and he says, my sheep hear my, hear my voice. And, and if you're one of his sheep, you've heard his voice and you've trusted him. And he says, and my sheep hear my voice. And he says, and I hold them in my hand. And he says, and I, Jesus, and the Father are one, and the Father holds them in his hands, holds me in his hands. So, so now, Jesus is saying, you, you, you're not going to get out of his hand, nor his hand that's held by the Father's hand. You understand, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he lived the life you couldn't, he died the death you deserved, and he did it for you. When you believe that, you are born again, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and you are secure in Christ, Period. This is not a picture of you're secure as long as you hang on, hang on. No, no, no. You're secure in Jesus. How secure is Jesus? You're in him. He's not moving. You know, when the storms start hitting here, and they are now kind of tornado season around here coming up, and you always see these pictures when a storm hits, you know, every, these amazing buildings are leveled or a house is leveled, and yet right next to this house that's made of brick and has been leveled, there might be just this spindly telephone pole that's just standing totally intact like it's untouched though 190 mile an hour winds have come by and that what i want you to see in that is there's a picture there of when the storm when the tornado hit the telephone pole didn't so to speak dig deeper hold on dig deeper hold on through the whole storm before the storm ever hit the telephone pole was deeply embedded in the ground and secure and the tornado only revealed, so to speak, those things that were not secure. That's all it did. The storm just reveals what's not secure. What's secure is secure before the storm ever came. And in this way, when we think of endurance, I, I hope you'll hear this. It's, uh, I'll say, um, one of my seminary professors helped, helped me on this, uh, Dr. Constable. He said this, quote, Our ultimate salvation does not depend on enduring persecution faithfully, but on God's faithfulness to his promise to keep us secure. So it depends on if what Paul said is true, that nothing can separate us. And that's what God says. Do you see that? So our endurance becomes an expression of our security. Not a means to salvation. Is everybody with me on this? This is freedom in Christ, our great security. So a biblical understanding of end times, 
doesn't create anxiety. And if we truly understand what Jesus is saying here, we go, no, I, you know what? God's in control. I am secure in Christ. Whatever's happening in the world, and even think about this, in your world, I'm secure in Christ. And the last thing I mentioned here was that the Holy Spirit is working through me. This is really important. Where do I get that? Go back to verses 9, 10, and 11. I want you to look at those verses with me. 9, 10, and 11. He says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony. Mark that word testimony. So you're going to stand before kings, and you're going to testify about me. And then there's this odd verse. Doesn't it kind of come out of nowhere? It's like it doesn't fit. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. So you got, you're going to be before kings, give testimonies. Then he just says, you know what? The gospel's got to be preached, spoken to all nations. And then verse 11, it says, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're to say. Mark that. But say, mark that word, whatever is given you in that hour, where it's not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. So everybody has, everybody's eyes back up here on me. This is, this is not a, a mark and sandwich so much as a mark and slider. I'll call it that because it's kind of small, isn't it? But do you notice he talks about you're going to give a testimony. You're going to speak whatever the Holy Spirit says. And then right in the middle, he just makes a statement of fact. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now, how do, we, how do we keep this little mini slider together and what's it telling us? Well, I want to suggest that it's telling us that in the midst of persecution and hardship, the message of the disciples is not, hey, you, you, you arrested me unjustly. I need to get out of here. Hey, y- y'all have mistreated us. You've beaten, beaten us and you shouldn't have beaten us, so you need to let us go. That's not the message. The message here is, persecution, hardship will put you in places where you will have the opportunity to testify the testimony, to preach the gospel, to speak what the Holy Spirit produces in you. And let me tell you what they said when they were before kings and magistrates when they were unjustly treated. You know what they said? They said this, I'm here today Because I believe God sent his only son, Jesus, to live the life we couldn't and fulfill the law. And he died the death we all deserve because the law says sin deserves death. But having no sin of his own, Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus says, if you'll believe what I did, I did for you, then you are forgiven all your sins and clothed in his righteousness. And that's why I stand before you today. That's what they said. Which tells us that, you know, we're not, we don't experience, at least in our day, certainly the prosecution in the ways that they did here. But it tells us this, God is always sovereignly at work using hardship, okay, difficulties to put you and me and you and you in specific places. You go places I'll never go. You go places he'll never go, but to put you in a place and you're there. Do you know why you're there? Do you know why you're at that job? Do you know why you're in that neighborhood? Do you know why your kid's in that sports team? Do you know why your kid has that friend that you don't really like, but he's a friend and you're with that family? So that you and I would speak the gospel in those places. And I struggle with this. I don't like this at all, but it makes me wonder... If 
we ought not fear the absence of persecution more than the presence. Let me take it down a notch. The absence of difficulties. Fear the absence of difficulties more than the presence of difficulties. Because if there's one thing for sure we read in our Bibles and we learn to stand about the Christian life, it's hard. And God uses those hardships for his glory. Okay, Jesus says, look at verse 23. Take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. You knew the horns were going to blow. I told you in advance. And yet, you jumped. <laughs> and I did too, so don't, don't, you know, don't beat yourself up. I didn't know it was going to blow either, and, and you, it shocks you. But, but I wanted to do that just to say this, that, you know, when that horn did blow, it distracted you for a minute. Of course, it shocked you a little. That's okay. But because you knew I told you it was going to happen, and it was going to happen twice, it didn't derail you, did it? In other words, you didn't spend the rest of the message going, somebody needs to go back there and find out if something's wrong. Is there something going on, on the road back there? We need to exit the building. Did something happen in the learning center? You didn't, it didn't derail you. You know, I mean, we jump, we cap, we smile, we laugh, but we kept going. And that's the point Jesus makes here about what's coming. Need not derail us. And can I go even beyond, you know, the end times? Let me tell you, whatever, whatever happens to you this afternoon and tomorrow, and whatever's in your future and mine, it need not derail us. It can distract us for a moment. But then we go back to what we know matters most. God's in control. I am secure in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is at work in me. That's the Christian life. We live day in and day out. Jesus uses uh, one Greek word, and he uses it three different ways. In verse 5, this Greek word, the Greek word, the root word is blepo. But in verse 5, that word blepo is translated, see to it that, okay? See to it that no one leads you astray. In verse 9, it's translated, be on your guard. Same word, but he translates it, be on your guard, translators do. Verse 23, the back end, take heed, same same root word, which is, so what does it mean? Well, what, what's, what's the translators trying to help us understand? Well, it means all those things. If I summarize it, I might say it this way. Be prepared to respond in faith. Be prepared to respond. Not react, but respond. And to respond in faith. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to give you an opportunity to have a conversation with God right now. When you think about the future, does it create anxiety? Let's back away from the end of time as we know it to this afternoon, to what's on our mind about tomorrow and what the week holds. Does that create anxiety, fear, or can you know God's in control of this? 
you are secure in Christ, and the Holy Spirit will work through you even now. Would you have a conversation with God now and invite him to help you see, believe, trust, and understand this? To believe him for whatever he's inviting you to trust him for in the power of the Spirit. Let's stand together. I'm going to read a benediction over you from the pen of Paul, so appropriate in these words to us and coming out of these words from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, may, may God keep you at Jesus' coming. Now listen to how it ends. Faithful is he who calls you. He also will bring it to pass. God is in control. You are secure in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is at work in you. God bless.